Did you know that within a decade, women will hold $30 trillion in investable assets? Yet somehow, only 19% of women reported feeling confident in selecting investments that align with their long-term goals. Our friends at InvestHer are out to change that. InvestHer Con is the number one premier conference for women in real estate, and it's happening June 2nd through the 4th in Austin, Texas. InvestHerCon is not just another real estate conference. It's a transformational experience focused on real estate investing, business strategies, and self-care tactics, all designed to help women take control of their financial futures. Gain the knowledge and skills you need to grow your portfolio and build a sustainable business, all while connecting with over 500 women who are playing at the same level. To learn more and to get your tickets, visit InvestHerCon.com today and use the code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. That's InvestHer, H-E-R, Con.com, promo code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. Quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or to make or consider any investment or course of action. For more information, go to bestevershow.com. This all sounds super complicated, but for the person that's transacting in it, just like the lay person, it's going to look exactly the same. It's just not going to be like New York Stock Exchange or NASDAQ. You're going to just go to whoever your broker is and you're going to just do it from there. But that helps. Welcome to the Best Ever Show, the world's longest running daily commercial real estate podcast. Our hosts interview commercial real estate experts every day to get you the best advice ever with none of the fluffy stuff. Hello, Best Ever listeners. Welcome to the Best Real Estate Investing Advice Ever Show. I'm Ash Patel, and I'm with today's guest, Kyle Stevie. Kyle is joining us from Fort Thomas, Kentucky. He is a logistics account executive at TQL, a co-founder of Sparing Capital, a real estate investment company based in Kentucky that focuses on commercial, residential, and mid-sized properties, and he's also the author of Digital Melting, Making Illiquid Assets Liquid Through Tokenization. Kyle's portfolio consists of one multi-use and two commercial properties. Kyle, thank you for joining us, and how are you today? I'm doing great. How are you doing, buddy? Very well. And best ever listeners, fair disclosure, Kyle and I have been friends for a number of years. Kyle, before we get started, can you give the best ever listeners a little bit more about your background and what you're focused on now? Yeah. So real estate investment wise, as you said, I have a mixed use and two commercial properties. In 2016, way back when I started with TQL, I always envisioned myself transitioning to something else besides sales. So I did law school at night. And then through my temperament and inability to get along with people, I kind of got stuck in the position I was at because apparently if you have a really bad temper and you don't take no for an answer, it's not very conducive to working with other people. So I felt like this thing doesn't work out with sales and luckily it has so far, but if it doesn't work out, what am I going to do with the rest of my life? So my wife and I have been kicking around the idea of different streams of income, A, to have something to fall back on, but B, make more money because who doesn't want to make more money? So we found these two properties up in the city that we live in, Fort Thomas, garbage properties, but they were in an entertainment district and they were this albatross on the neck of this area. They had this renovated restaurant called the Midway Cafe, getting reviews real positive around the region for their wings and for the atmosphere. So I knew that they had the anchor tenant and I felt like if we just can get these properties right, that being right next door to Midway, we were going to have 
businesses come in that were going to do very well. We just had to do something that was complementary to what they were doing there at Midway. And that's what we wound up doing. We got them at a real cheap price because I think they carried out five dead bodies from these things. The woman who owned them died and tested. So for five years, they were just held up in probate court. And while they were held up, squatters just kept coming and going. I'm telling you, if you ever want to take over a country, really, without sacrificing too many human lives, just drop some drugs or something behind enemy lines and squatters will find a way to penetrate everything because locks didn't matter. If you barged the doors or whatever, it didn't matter. They got in. When we started demoing the one building, we found a shoe and a dead cat frozen to the floor. This is the weirdest freaking building we're ever going to be in in our lives. So we renovated those two. We have a commercial spot. We have this really cool restaurant called Grassroots and Vine. It's not ours. We obviously, we don't operate. I don't know anything about the restaurant business. But they've done really well. It's kind of become the rich housewives area. Fort Thomas has got a lot of money in it. So a lot of the housewives will go up there and take advantage of their patio. And they have good charcuterie boards and wine selection, stuff that's just too expensive for me. And then next door to that, we have an ice cream shop with two apartments on top. One's a two-bedroom, one's a one-bedroom. And those have done really well. But you know how it is hanging out with you guys, playing poker or whatever it is. All you guys are talking about, all these huge deals you're doing. And I just... Figured out how to get 64 units under contract. I met the guy, we stopped at a red light. I said, hey, do you invest in real estate? He goes, yeah, you want these units. I didn't have that. So what we did was I got in with my cousin, Joe, who you've met, who is a realtor in Covington. And he's in the young guys group in Covington. So he's in the know with a lot of movers and shakers. And for those that don't know, Covington's right across the river from Cincinnati. And it's booming. It's kind of like the Brooklyn to Cincinnati, for lack of a better term. We found this property because we were friends with a architect who was doing the house for the guy who owned the building. And he owns Hotel Covington. And he was trying to do this addition to Hotel Covington that just opened up yesterday, actually. And he wanted to take advantage of the tax credits from Opportunity Zone. So he created an Opportunity Zone fund. And he wanted to get the 15 basis points off of his capital gains that was part of the deal in 2019. I think it steps down 5% every year or whatever it was. So we bought the property from him. It's a six-story. It's on Madison Avenue, which is one of the busiest business districts in all of Kentucky, really. We just kind of lucked into it, but brother, we had a lot of work to do on that one. Let me pause you for a second there. The first two properties that you talked about, one was uh, ice cream shop on the bottom, apartments above. Do you still own that one? Yes. And cash flowing, doing well. What was the condition when you bought it? Was that also decrepit and bodies? I would put it on the shitty level. Okay. So like that was it's, a big yeah, value add. We bought it for 95000 And I think right about now it's worth about three fifty. Okay. The other the building other property, right next door. What was the other bought, property? It was just a one-story commercial. We bought it for fifty five, and it's probably worth about two twenty five right now. You didn't have any commercial experience prior to this, did you? I had no experience. I read a book. <laughs> How did you find the commercial tenants? Lucky badmouth realtors, but I signed a contract with a realtor and that guy didn't do shit. He took two pictures of took like three pictures of the we had or put into the ice cream shop. And I asked him like literally located three blocks from the building. I said, please walk down the street, take new pictures with the updated facade, please. Because what you have now, nobody's going to look at. He wouldn't do it. But sure shit, as soon as we signed that tenant, I got had like a demand, like you owe me my commission right now. I was like, you didn't do anything. I did the leases myself. But uh, By the way, they're going to bleep out all your cursing. That's fine. Which is fine, but 
just know that i won't this curse is, anymore this, sorry. This, this is not the kyle stevie podcast that you do with on the side uh, hustle city. <laughs> <laughs> i don't care if you curse just keep that in mind how it comes okay. across when you're getting bleeped just make sure you don't lose any content from doing that all right um okay so you realize the realtor wasn't going to get it done for you how did you land that tenant the ice cream shop, like I said, we got lucky. We were at a church festival and one of the members of our parish was there and they had discussed wanting to open up an ice cream shop. And the husband had been making his own ice cream in their basement for years. It was actually really good. So like, all right, we'll give you a shot. In this area, you can't charge a premium price per square foot. You just can't. It's a bedroom community. It's not a big business area. There's not people knocking on your door to get in here. So we rolled the dice with him. The grassroots and vine, I was on the design not the design review board, but every city has to do a 10-year planning things. So I forget what committee I was on. One of the ladies that was part of it stopped me after and she said, hey, she owned a consignment shop in the middle of town. She said she had this idea for what she wanted to do, which was going to be like a restaurant, but you could also buy like boutique wines because she was from North Carolina. So she had connections with local wineries there and had this really good popcorn. Honestly, oh, a really cool setup that she wanted to do. And said, well, we don't have anybody else. So come on along. And Man, she did a great job. Good. All right. And now your third property. Yes. This was our proof of work. I call this my thank you, Joe Fairless, for making me take a risk on something that I didn't think I was possibly able to do. Because I joined his old mastermind group where you were his student. You went through the classes and stuff. And I was getting right at the time that people were getting hip to Cincinnati and Northern Kentucky. So we were getting a lot of West Coast investors. So there's a multifamily property coming on. You were competing with these guys that were willing to overpay to get to a five cap in a seven cap area. I couldn't do it. Just couldn't figure out a way to pull that trigger. So we figured out with that building in Covington that we could do it. And then we got a group together. We sold five shares. We syndicated one of the shares and only raised 780. So it wasn't like it was a crazy raise. So that's where we're at now. Just getting that thing up and running. A $780,000 raise Mm -hmm. on what was the purchase price? Purchase price was two, and then we had to put another two in it. A $2 million renovation. So this is a building, and I've seen this. It's a beautiful old building. It looks like an old office tower. How many stories does it have? It has six, and then we're putting a rooftop bar and restaurant. So we're renting seven floors. Yeah, all commercial, no residential. Yeah, all class A. So far, everything's been triple net. We're getting a percentage of the gross sales of the restaurant. And then we're going to step it down as we pay off some of the tenant improvement that went over what we were allotting. All right. Now you sound like a savvy commercial real estate investor. How did you know how to deal with tenant improvement, TI, and how did you know to ask for part of their gross sales? Well, this is where being around people that know what they're doing is crucial. So Joe does this for a living. He negotiates tenant leases. So he rolled it. He did everything with it. Good. How far are you away from getting this building up and running? I'd be lying if I told you, because every time I say it, I push it back <laughs> like six months. So we have a bank on the first floor. We have a law firm on the fifth and sixth floors right now. The restaurant will be open by the end of June. I've been up there. I finally feel like it's actually going to be open by the end of June. We have a data company on the fourth floor, and we are just waiting for the second and third floor, which I think will pretty much lease once the restaurant's open and they see how much foot traffic's coming that way. A big holdup with us was that our elevator in the building, I told you about this, wasn't ADA compliant. It was put in when the building was built in like 1908. You and I couldn't have been on there comfortably. 
let alone a gurney that would have to go up there if something, God forbid, happens in one of the offices. We have a service elevator, but it only goes to the fifth floor. So we had to take out the whole shaft, put a new shaft in. When they decided to do a restaurant as opposed to just a bar, we had to put storage in the basement. So we had to underpin the foundation there. And the machine room was going to be in the basement, but we had to get creative with that with our engineers. Explain that to me again. You had to underpin the foundation. Why? Because it has a basement, but where the slab was at, we're going to to dig actually deeper as opposed to just having the machine room right there and having it stop on the first floor. We had to take it all the way down into the basement. The shaft had to go a little bit deeper. What did that whole elevator debacle cost? Well, here's another thing you're going to learn if you have to deal with elevator companies. There's only four of them. Customer service isn't exactly a top priority because as soon as one company starts working on it, nobody else is going to take on that liability. So if you have a service call, you got to go with the provider. So that held us up about three months. So the actual cost of the whole construction was right around 385, 400, but lost leases was probably about four months. Kyle, this building was fully vacant when you bought it. No, it had two tenants. It had the bank and then it had another group that was on the fifth floor and they were all older guys. So once the elevator went out of service and they had to walk up the flight of stairs and all the noise, they got out as soon as they could. They did not want any part of the reconstruction. I don't blame them. What it's else kinda... did you spend $2 million on? Well, we have the fire exits. So we have stairs that go all the way up to the roof. Now we had a, we had a crane in another flight of stairs. We had a cinder block around that. We had the build out for the tenant improvements. We have brand new windows all through the building, brand new systems. Basically the whole building's brand new, except for the outside. All right. I want to deep dive into this property. We're going to have you back if you're okay with that. Because okay. you're making this seem easy. But I know this has been going on for how many years? We had to buy it in 2019, the building itself. We didn't get the construction loan until April of 2020, which was right in the heart of COVID. So we've had it three years now. All right. We're going to come back and do a deep dive on this. But let's move on to how did you become an expert in tokenization of real estate and blockchain technologies? Okay. So this was completely accidental. I was really into crypto when I first was introduced to it, right when everybody else was, when Bitcoin went for $5,000 to $15,000, it seemed like almost overnight, it was like over a two month stretch or whatever in 2017. So I went to an event that was held here in Cincinnati called Day for Crypto. Adam Kaler's my co-host on my podcast, Side Hustle City, but he was the one that got this together. How he pulled this together in like four days is amazing because he flew in people from Europe and all over the place. But I was listening to a lot of the pitches and the theory and all this other stuff. And I was like, this doesn't make sense. Well, this kind of makes sense. I can see how this makes sense. This is bullshit. And then in the middle of it, this guy was in the Cincinnati Reds house, started talking. And he just seen much firmer grasp of what the future held for blockchain itself, as opposed to everybody else. There, Everybody else was speaking like unicorns and rainbows and we're all going to get rich and he was like, that's not going to happen for 95% of these guys. This is where I see blockchain going. After that was over, we had a meet and greet. I met Adam Kaler and I met the guy in the red side, which is Michael Hiles, who's the CEO of 10XTS. And we just had a one-off conversation. It was no big deal. I got invited to go to the Crypto Valley, whatever we used to call it, crypto meetup in Cincinnati at Union Hall. And the third meeting, I think, Hiles came down. He came into the room, kind of like the legend, like Larry Bird before the three-point competition. He's kind of looking at everybody and sizing them up. And he's like, who's going to come in second? Well, Hiles is like, you guys realize that all of these guys are 
going to get popped for trading securities and it's completely illegal. And they're either going to get a cease and desist until they have to change everything they're doing, or they're going to have to close up shop. If they even get to that point, because most of those guys were just like throwing out like a marketing white paper, and then they were releasing a token and beating everybody to the market and making millions. And then you never heard from them again. So with my legal background, I'm like, this guy makes way more sense. This is exactly how I feel, but I just am not comfortable with what these guys are throwing out here. So I listened to Hiles gave his presentation, the next meetup, and it was about tokenizing municipal bonds and about the efficiencies and settlements that you could get through using smart contracts on different permission blockchains so that you could conduct these trades that the SEC would be okay with and that a municipality could go from having 35% overhead for a municipal bond release to 5% overhead. And that if you didn't want to hold 10 years till the bond matured, you would have a marketplace for it. And I felt like you're years away from this. I mean, people are not going to do this very soon, but that makes perfect sense. Well, fast forward to COVID. Well, Kyle, let me just see if I understand that. The premise of that was when a municipality wants to issue bonds and raise capital, they have to probably go through a Wall Street type company that takes a third of the money raised as their fee, so to speak. And then once those investors buy the municipal bonds, there's not liquidity on a secondary market. Is that right? Not to my knowledge, there wasn't. Okay. I didn't. Got- this part of the reason why I wrote the book, I'll be honest with you, I didn't dive as deep probably as I should have. I dove deep. I didn't 100% understand everything. Okay. And listen, I understand way less than you do. So he initially set out to solve a problem. Yes. Okay. To provide liquidity where no liquidity was currently at. Got it. So they took that and they pivoted during COVID. That's when the start of this idea, these secondary markets for private assets was really starting to come fruition. People were understanding that a lot of states were starting to put together committees to understand blockchain and smart contracts and this whole idea of trustless settlement and how you could program in things like disbursements to shareholders. You could program in settlements between settling broker and the custodial bank. And once he started talking about that, you go from trillion dollar market or whatever the bonds were to, you have all of these assets that are privately held. You're talking like mineral rights. You're talking private equity and companies. You're talking your equity in a real estate property, artwork, everything that you invest in because you feel like it's going to appreciate in value, but you can't get out of it unless you sell it. And the idea that all you have to do is link together all these different broker-dealer sites. They're called alternative trading systems. And link them together and make sure that every trade's settling properly and you're following all the SEC's protocols that you're going to be able to get out of a deal that you don't want to be in. Or you can buy more. And once I started getting into it even more, I was like, oh, my God. Depending on your offering, most of us in private are doing exemptions, 506C, crowdfunding, Reg A+, plus, whatever you're doing. You can now sit out that six months, and then you can list your shares, your equity on these sites, trust that it can be traded across these different ATS, just like a traditional stock market. And you can sell to people who are shut out right now. If you're not an accredited investor, you don't get into any of this fun stuff. So this was going to open up a whole new, basically market participation because now accredited, non-accredited investors are going to be able to get into a real estate property or whatever six months after it's been listed. 
and you're going to get a tremendous part of the upside as opposed to trying to get into an IPO. And you know, IPOs last three years or whatever, too many of them have been pretty much garbage. Like you get in, but all the value has gone because they've gone through series A, B, C, D, E, F, and all the value that was accumulated has already happened. So then you're back to the eight, 10% as opposed to eight X, 10 X. You've been living in this world for a long time and I'm literally trying to catch up and understand what's coming out of your mouth. So yes, real estate investments are very inefficient because especially syndication investments, if I invest in somebody else's deal, I am at the mercy of whenever they sell the property before I have any liquidity, before I can get my money back. There's times where in certain situations, you can sell your shares back to the operator for a huge discount. But other than that, I can't get my money out. And even on my own investments, my own real estate purchases, until I sell the property or do a cash out refi, there's no way to really add liquidity to those investments. And because of that, those markets are inefficient. They're not priced like capital markets. This morning, everybody knew the price of Ford Motor Company was whatever it is because the trades happen so often. So with what you guys are doing, it adds liquidity, makes markets more efficient, adds real-time value to these properties. Is that right? Yeah, what you said was correct, except for the part what we're doing. So what they're doing is Explain they don't to care. me the we and they. They is 10 XTS. Okay, got it. What they're doing is they don't care who owns what or who trades on what. They're going to keep you compliant with the SEC. Here's a perfect example, okay? The St. Regis in Aspen, Colorado, did an $18 million renovation, and they tokenized that $18 million. They use T0 as their broker-dealer site. They're using their ATS. You can go to it right now, and you can look at it. Actually, they just signed a new deal with someone else to provide an even larger marketplace so they can provide more liquidity, because right now, since nobody really knows what's going on and that the ATSs aren't linked, you don't have much market participation. You don't have any liquidity. But you can go there and you can buy a piece of the St. Regis right now if you want. You're buying a piece of the special purpose vehicle that owns that part of the equity of St. Regis, just like you would do with the syndication. You don't own eight one six hundred and fiftieth of the building. You own one hundred one six hundred and fiftieth of the company that has taken possession of the building. So it's like buying a paper stock certificate versus exactly. an electronic trade on Ameritrade. Yes, that's exactly what tokenization is. It's just a digital representation of your ownership interest. Everybody's gotten so confused because of crypto. In crypto, you don't have any equity in most of these companies. You have a token. Token doesn't give you any ownership of the company. You can just go and trade it on Coinbase or whatever and hope to God you catch the right thing. This is actually a real world thing. So if you don't even want to do this, you just offer it like you would do traditionally. You pay out your dividends or whatever you're paying out quarterly or monthly or whatever. And then when you sell the property, they get whatever your deal is at the end of the property, they get their 2X or whatever overall. But this, this permits you to have the best of both worlds. You are able to have that part of it, just like you do right now, but you're also able to get out of it earlier if you need to, because something happens all the time. So if you have a medical emergency and you're like, man, I really could use that thousand dollars just gave to be part of this apartment community in Dallas, you can take $50,000 and you can list it on the ATS and then they can trade it across a different ATS. And then 10XTS will 
be we'll work with a settling broker and the custodial bank, and they'll have the transfer agent to settle the ledger. Everything will be up to date and right away. So, Kyle, these ATSs are essentially marketplaces to trade your tokens. Yes, they have to be created by a FINRA okay. registered broker dealer. So, the one that I use just because I've met the guy who owns it is Templin. They seem to be market setter. They're very aggressive with bringing things onto their ATS to be able to be traded there. But yes, that's where they're at. We'll get back to the show with the first some sponsors I'm confident you'll find value in learning more about. Deciding how to invest your capital is more challenging than ever. That's why it's never been more important to partner with a company with a solid track record and that has thrived through various economic cycles. Companies like BAM Capital. BAM Capital is a trusted multifamily syndicator that has delivered a historical average of over 35% IRR with an average hold period of three and a half years. BAM Capital has never missed a preferred payment, never lost an LP's investment, and never called capital past the subscription amount. BAM Capital is currently raising capital for a fund designed for accredited investors targeting a 15 to 20% IRR and a 2 to 2.5x equity multiple to its investors over a three to five year hold period. If you're an accredited investor and you want to learn more about multifamily investment opportunities with BAM Capital, visit capital.thebamcompanies.com. Again, that's capital.thebamcompanies.com. Are you a real estate investor looking to break into the multifamily investing space? Have you heard of MFIN Con happening in Charlotte, North Carolina, June 12th through the 14th? The Multifamily Investor Nation Convention is a place to learn from over 60 high-level apartment investors while networking with more than 700 additional investors. If that's not enough for you, A-Rod, yep, Alex Rodriguez, 12-time Major League Baseball All-Star with over $700 million of commercial real estate assets, will be live and in person speaking at the event. Also speaking is the one and only Dr. Robert Cialdini, the godfather of influence and the award-winning author. I personally love his books. So be sure to secure your tickets to this live in-person event before they're gone. Go to MFINCon.com for more details. Sponsorship opportunities are also available. Visit MFINCON.com today. Use the promo code BESTEVER to get $200 off your tickets. That's MFINCON.com. Are these ATSs complimentary or competitive? In that, do they talk to each other or do they try to be the biggest, baddest first? See, that's another problem with liquidity is that they're kind of like walled gardens. And as it is right now, you can only go to the specific site. So they're competitors. Once they have the comfort in realizing that once trades occur and they're settled properly and they don't have to worry about hiring hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of lawyers later because a trade got duplicated on a different ATS, then I think they'll start talking to each other and realize that rising tide lifts all ships. But as of right now, yeah, it's their competitors. Okay. And then how is it that non-accredited investors are able to get into investments that otherwise were only open to accredited investors? Well, that's the deal is that you can sign up. You don't have to be an accredited investor to go to like Fidelity or Charles Schwab or anything like that. You just got to have to give your information you know, your social security number and set up whatever your account, and then you can trade from there. Interesting. So are these no longer considered securities? No, they're securities. They tripped the Howey test. And the Howey test was created in some sort of Supreme Court case back in the 20s or 30s, where basically the premise is this, is that if you have a company and you need investors, and I give you money with the idea that I'm not going to do any work, 
I'm not contributing to the improvement of this asset whatsoever, but I demand that you give me a return for my money, then that is a security. And that's the problem that a lot of the crypto companies were running into. It's because they couldn't define whether what they were offering was a security, was it a commodity. So they were running on whatever their legal status was. And then come to find out later on that the SEC interprets it completely different or the commodity trade commission, they think it's a commodity. So you got to play by their rules. This is just the traditional security. You know exactly what you're doing, what you're getting into. The only thing you're doing right now is making settlement more efficient. You're taking a lot of the friction out of the settlement part of it, and you're providing an opportunity to get your money or increase your holding without having to go through another batch of legal documents to fix the the holding, the ledger or whatever. Understood. So it's almost like trading shares in a REIT versus a syndication. Yes. They do this with public REITs now, but the issue with public REITs is that there's a lot of legal steps you got to take. You have to pay dividends. You have to do this. You have to do that. You have to register with the SEC. And you're talking about hundreds of thousands of dollars more than just an exempt offering. That's why most people with mid-sized offerings are going to go exempt because they don't want to deal with the overall burden of having to pay to be a publicly traded company. Understood. Kyle, I interviewed somebody just a few days ago, and they're in a similar space. They told me that the SEC basically took a bazooka to this whole industry and reset everybody. Now they have to go back to the drawing board because of a compliance and all that. Mm-hmm. Can you help me understand what the hell happened? Yeah. So I think we were talking to the same guy. So what happened is the properties have been tokenized for the last four or five years, but they've been issuing their tokens on what are called the public blockchains, layer ones. So what happens is that whenever you have a trade or whatever, the settlement has to be approved by the nodes, the computers that are on the system. And they'll say, yeah, this is a legit transaction. The issue with nodes is that you don't know who owns the node and who's going to benefit from the fees that they charge for verifying transactions. So you can have some sort of Russian or Ukrainian mobster that owns four or five nodes or different tokens on Ethereum, for example. And you're basically paying these guys when they shouldn't be able to make money off of it. And you potentially could be contributing to money laundering. And it's all really just BS for the government to make sure they're getting their taxes. But that's what they're saying. So what happens is that any bank that's partaking in this, whether they're financing the project or whatever, if their trade's going through with a public layer one blockchain and the nodes maintain the anonymity that they have now, which they are going to want to have anyway, that any of those trades are like subject to some major crackdown from the banking regulators. So what's going to happen is that you're going to wind up having to be private permission blockchain, which most financial institutions are going to be more comfortable with anyway. You don't want your customer's information on Ethereum. You want it on where you have possession and control. You can make sure that nobody's cracking in and getting access to information that they shouldn't be able to get access and information to. That's the way it's been explained to me anyway. And the solution to that is having a controllable private blockchain where you know all the nodes. Yeah. There's no anonymity, at least. There's no anonymity, right. Who's developing that? that? Is that a thing right now? Yeah, you know who's developing that. NextDS is developing that. Are there multiple companies developing that? Not many. Everybody was taking the path because they thought that the layer one on Ethereum was going to be okay. And now that it's not, 
there's like three or four competitors right now that are handling layer two, but it's expensive. You've got to deal directly with the SEC. You got to know exactly what you're looking at. You've got to pay the legal fees. You got to give them the documents that they want and make sure that you're fixing whatever they're asking for. And it's still not even set in stone. This is something that's like four or five years away from mass adoption. So when we trade our crypto on Coinbase, that Mm -hmm. uses the public layer one blockchain. Yes. And whenever anybody references that immutable ledger on the blockchain, that's one public blockchain. There's a few public blockchains. Ethereum is the one that most people use because Ethereum has made it very easy to build off of their blockchain. And then you can do your own tokens off of that. They're all ERC-20 tokens. Coinbase is just an exchange for you to trade. But most of those tokens that you see on there were created on Ethereum. Bitcoin's got its own. Ripple has its own. I haven't really paid attention to crypto very much lately just because I felt like the real world assets, tokenizing them was the future. Okay. Trying to wrap my head around this. So we're going to start seeing private blockchains that can be used for specialized purposes, tokenizing what are considered securities today and adding liquidity to real estate markets. Yes. It's going to start with real estate, in my opinion, but it's going to every private asset. Larry Fink just had a big thing on it. Chase Bank had a big article on it. It's happening. Kyle, when I think about liquidity and tokenization for U.S.-based real estate assets, I think this would be awesome because a lot of foreign investors that want exposure to U.S. real estate, there's no easy way for them to do that now other than syndications and maybe coming out here and buying their own real estate. Now I can sell tokens of my real estate all over the world. Are there any regulatory issues with accepting foreign capital? It's going to be the same way as it is right now. Whatever country, I guess, is not allowed to participate in our marketplaces. If you're a citizen of that country, you're out. You still got to do your KYCs and your AMLs. Okay. So this all sounds super complicated, but for the person that's transacting in it, just like the lay person, it's going to look exactly the same. It's just not going to be like New York Stock Exchange or NASDAQ. You're going to just go to whoever your broker is and you're going to just do it from there. If that helps. It does. And in theory, it should add a lot more investors into U.S. real estate. So the byproduct would be U.S. real estate prices because of the lack of supply and increased demand should skyrocket. Yeah. Another theory that goes along with that as well is that public REITs, they have this liquidity premium that, that investors don't charge. You know, you're able to just trade your shares or whatever after your holding period if you want to get out. The private real estate holders, you have to pay your investors more in terms of return because they're taking a larger risk. So the idea is this is going to compress the interest that you're going to be expected to pay out to your investors. So you should be able to make more money in that regard as well. Kyle, so on that note, as well. I know you got to run. Tell us about your book. Where can we get it? You can get my book on Amazon in the ebook form or just paperback. It's in Barnes and Noble. It's all major books suppliers. It's called Digital Melting, Making Illiquid Real Estate Assets Liquid Through Tokenization. The title is basically about as long as the book. It's only like 150 pages or something like that in big, bold print because it makes it easier to read. It's just an introductory book. It starts with what is blockchain and it ends with how you go about tokenizing your equity share and a special purpose vehicle and all the steps you have to take. The book's been on my desk for weeks. 
since it came out. I should probably uh, yeah. read it. I should have read it before. Meet somebody, I've yet to meet somebody read it all the way through. It's just too much. It's like, man, it took me three years to write this thing to make it compress it down to like easily understandable information as I saw it. And then I was like, nobody really understands what it is yet. So I get why it's so hard for everybody to read. I do like the tone though, because they said it's like how I speak. So. Yeah, I read your manuscript as you were writing it, and it was a very simple, easy read. Explains a lot of this stuff in layman's terms. Awesome, Kyle. We need to have you back. Deep dive on the $2 million yeah. renovation on a $2 million building. Let's do that, all right? Yeah. Thanks all for right. having me. Awesome. Thank you guys so much. Best ever listeners, thank you for joining us. If you enjoy this episode, please leave us a five-star review. Share this episode with somebody you think can benefit from it. Also, follow, subscribe, and have a best ever day. Hi, Best Ever listeners. Joe Fairless here again. And one last thing before you go, would you like to receive a short weekly email with proven tips from experienced investors, free tools and resources, and a roundup of the week's most relevant news and Best Ever content? Well, if so, join the community of nearly 15,000 commercial real estate passive and active investors who receive the Best Ever newsletter. Just go to bestevercre.com forward slash access. And you'll get the very next one. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And as always, thank you for listening and have a best ever day.